0: Every day, more and more immigrants turn 18 and start voting, canceling out all of your votes. Um, it's it's about five more years. We'll never re- Trump will be the last Republican president. Um, yeah, you think, oh, well, you may get another Supreme Court nomination. That'll save us. That'll... No, no Democrats, as we saw from this last election, they can't wait 10 years for demographics to change things. They have to invent a Russia conspiracy. They're so upset about this brief interregnum with Donald Trump. No, they will not wait. Why even fight the Florida or Georgia elections? It's The whole country will be yours moments from now. No, we can't wait. We can't wait. Um, so I assume they'll... they'll They'll pack the court. Um, it won't matter how many. Trump could report could replace four Supreme Court justices, and President Beto or President Kamala will come in and say, hey, I think we need four more justices on the Supreme Court.
1: And I like the theory that the the problem is that Trump is nursing calluses on his thumbs from doing too much tweeting. <laughs> like for, for from too much thumb typing, like I, I, I think, I think that that's really we're going to lose the whole republic over that. Yeah, but you're you're correct, of course, uh, the, and I had the same viewpoint that he should have began on immigration on day one because these things are complicated. That was
0: his promise.
1: That was his promise, and that was the one where I mean, it's going to be so hard to make the case for him uh, if there's no wall uh, come 2020. And I think the Democrats are probably going to nominate someone pretty bad, and so there's a chance Republicans win again. But you're correct. Well, no, there
2: that,
0: isn't.
1: Okay, so so it's it, the the
0: he barely won the last election. I mean, it was very true. exciting. It was great. Everybody remembers election yeah. night. Um, you always have this this feeling that we're invincible and ha ha ha. You guys, you're losers. You lost. Um, it was really close. You switch eighty thousand votes, mostly in the industrial Midwest, um, and, and he loses. And um, I. I told him directly during the transition, uh, if you don't keep your promises, um, you run the exact same election four years from now, and just through the process of immigrants turning 18 and block voting for the Democrats, you lose the exact same election.
1: Okay, so th- I want to talk about this demographic bomb that, that we're about to lose. Uh, the Pretty much the entire voter base of the Republican Party uh, is is just getting older, and the Democrats are importing new generations of voters, and this is coming, and no one's taken this seriously. Mark Stein's been writing about this forever. You've been writing about it forever. I mean, you don't even need a hardcore right-winger to be able to identify that this is happening. It's clearly part of the design. Woo!
3: It's time to raise our voice up high, y'all! Woo! This is Profane Face.
1: He said in there shall be signs of the sun and in the moon and in the stars and upon the earth distress of nations.
0: I think she's a liar and I think she deserves
1: mockery. It was something about when I put this hat on, it made me feel like Superman. Black lives are very important. White lives are very important. And to me, all lives are very important. Very, very important. Damn!
3: This is Profane Faith, a podcast that engages faith on the margins. Faith that has been labeled profane, nonconformist, and or out there. We'll be exploring the intersections of the sacred, secular, and profane find God. I'm your host, your boy, Daniel White-Hodge. Hey, hey, y'all. What is happening? What is going on out there? Here we go, yo. This your boy, Dan White-Hodge. Here, Profane Faith. Oh, man, here we go. Another week, another place. You're listening to this in real time. It is the Christmas season here, late 2018, I'm in Chicago. It's getting cold. As you know, Chicago would. Yeah, I'm on my parka now, y'all. I'm down to getting into my beanie, like the beanie with the thinsulate. That's that's how you know you live in like a cold area. When you start naming like the type of things that keep you warm and stuff, right? Thinsulate, wool, double layers. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I tell you, oh man, you know, and I never thought I'd, you know, live in a place like this because I just was California, and that was always my spot, and and you know, I didn't have to think of anything but, uh, you know, a windbreaker. But now a brother is uh, a brother is talking about you know duck shoes and uh, watertight this, and <laughs> it's crazy, man, it's crazy. But you know, hey. It is what it is, right? You know, I'm thankful to be continue to work and uh, continue to be in a city that's that's a great city. So you know, I can't. Uh, I guess I could complain. You know, and, you know, I guess I could let that out. You know, vent a little bit. I don't like putting on my jacket every. You know, taking it off. Taking, I mean, it's, it's like it's like you know, taking off another putting on and taking off another set of clothes. Every time you go somewhere, you go to a restaurant or whether you go, you know, off I'm going to the office, it's just kind of like, oh, to go outside, I got to put everything on. That's the one thing I do appreciate about the summer. Now, granted, I'm sweating all kinds, especially now that I've been on um, uh, Zoloft. One of the side effects of Zoloft, I think I've talked about this before, is just sweating. So I'm sweating for everything, y'all, everything. <laughs> so summer is just a abundant feast, an abundant feast of sweat uh, for anybody who likes sweat. It's there there for you <laughs> so uh yeah but the one thing i don't have to do when i go out is continually put on stuff or off or on and so i'm like oh it's one thing that drives me nuts and it's like it's cool now but i know come february i'm gonna be like ty like oh and then you know leads into march but look at me i'm a true wit midwesterner right i've just taken the last you know two minutes to talk about the weather on a podcast and you gotta love that right ha <laughs> Well, welcome all. Uh, welcome new listeners. I welcome folks who are, you know, just checking this out. Especially uh, today's guest. I mean, it. Man, Kathy Kong. Man, what can I say about her? And I genuinely don't want to take a lot of time here because our conversation goes deep. We cover a lot of ground, and I want to get right to that. Um, but yeah, I, welcome to you guys uh, again, Profane Faith. We've been on now for a year. We're just a little over 60 episodes in, approaching our 100th episode. And um, I'm really excited that, you know, we our listenership continues to grow. Our ratings continue to grow. So, uh, again, if this is your first time listening, if you're on SoundCloud listening, or if you're on iTunes, whitehodgepodcast.com, you'll find out more. I also have my own personal website, whitehodge.com, and uh, you can find out more about me, your boy, Dan White Hodge. And then I always say go back to episode 00 and episode 01, Um and to find out a little bit more about me and what this podcast is about. And if you're loving it, drop me a line and let me know. I've gotten some amazing emails and direct messages from folks. So, you know, keep it coming. If you're not enjoying it, you know what? I'm I'm cool. I guess I could hear that. Um (laughs) you know what I'm saying? If you got constructive stuff, but if you got, you know, if it's just you just want to gripe and and, and stuff, um brother ain't got no time for that. You know what I'm saying? Come on now. (laughs) Uh but you know, at any rate, um yes. Here we are, um, good to be with y'all once again. Another week. Thanks for plugging in and turning on. Um, did y'all hear that recording at the beginning? That was that that's that's insane. Um, I follow a, a a couple of different podcasts. Well, one I don't even know if you can consider this a podcast, but it's called Right Wing Watch, and they have a SoundCloud account, and uh, they just it's just nothing but just crazy quotes from right wing radio. Um, I actually used to follow a lot of, you know, of right wing radios, you know, when I had a an empty stomach. And um this is just some crazy stuff that's out there, yo. And but now this is like a one-stop shop. It just it surveys them all and just it grabs up a lot of the crazy stuff. Because oftentimes it's it's difficult for me to sit through an entire show listening to some of that stuff. And so this right wing watch is really a great space to just be able to pick up on some of that um, you know, some of that material that is that just is like it's unbelievable right and some of these conspiracy theories about you know the Democrats and the devil and how the devil is gonna take over so you know listening to Ann Coulter there at the beginning she's always got an interesting uh word to say and so I just had to play that because I was like man this week you know talking with Kathy Kong it uh, you know raising your voice what does that mean uh and uh, she's gonna get into that. Um, and you know, part of it is is that I feel like this podcast has been raising my voice, part of raising my voice. Now, as you you know, if you know me, you know, I, you know, I publish, I write, I speak. Um, but I knew I wanted a stronger, you know, um public presence. and so that's what you know, this podcast has been. It's been a basically a public a public engagement uh, with issues dealing with race and religion and hip hop and all that other good stuff. And so, um that's what this space has been around um and you know and I get it other people have those environments as well um that's what right wing a lot of right wing radio does uh is it creates those spaces for folks and I get it that's just the society we're living in I think what gets me is when we pit the two against each other and say one's evil and one's you know one's completely evil I think there's evil aspects in both don't get me don't get me wrong okay um but to say one is completely evil, they're demonic, they are completely devils. Like, I know not all Republicans in the GOP party are evil or seeking after evil, I know that. It just happens to be that a lot of them that are in power are, are, are after that, are in that pursuit of that. And, um, but you know, this rhetoric that comes out, uh, it's just, it's amazing. You know, we're gonna become a Muslim nation if we turn Democrat again. Um, you know, you hear Ann Coulter talking about, you know, she doesn't think that Trump is going to get elected in 2020. Um, I actually think he is. And, and you know, unless there's some candidate that's able to galvanize folks. But even then, I don't I don't I don't really know if even that's going to work. We are in such a place and we're kind of reaching a different height. I've said this on the show a hundred times, if not a thousand times. You know, we are at a serious apex and we're at a place where truth is no longer valued as an important um, you know, an important gathering place, you know, we can at least gather at the monument of truth and be like, ah, okay, I see that. Okay, I can see that. All right, let's, let's And now it's like, well, that truth ain't real. That's your truth, but you, you ain't right. You're wrong. <laughs> so, and you know, and some things are binary. It's like the folks who keep saying like, oh, we just got to give Trump a chance. And you know, that's who God has placed in there. I, I ain't got time for that type of rhetoric anymore. I really don't. So for me, it's 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 no longer about just it trying to entertain and see it from the other person's point of view. It's like, no, if you have an administration that is dead set against niggas, <laughs> people at the border, right? And, and and I get it. I know. I mean, and Obama did stuff too, right? I mean, there was the only Obama administration where they were launching tear gas. The border, the south, the southern border towards Mexico has been problematic for many, many years, many years. So obviously, it's not just Trump throwing the tear gas; it's been other presidents as well, and that's problematic as well. This is an ongoing problem. It's just Trump that's just been so vagrant about it, and flagrant about it, and so just bombastic <laughs> to use a word has been used against me. <laughs> um, he's been bombastic about you know just. You know, this 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 notion that, you know, we have to do everything we can to protect the border. It really is an excuse to say we really don't want those people here at all. And if if we had our way, we could just get rid of them. But we can't. So let's do what we can here. Um, You know, that's that's uh, that's some crazy stuff, some crazy stuff. So, um, yeah, I had to go talk with Kathy Kong this week. She has an amazing voice. I have loved working with Kathy. She. Um, She just it, you'll see if you've never heard her before, you'll see. She just has an amazing way of crafting things and seeing it. A uh, combination of snark and wit and intelligence all mixed into one. I love it. Uh, she's a writer, a speaker, coffee drinker. She's based in the north suburbs of Chicago. Uh, she co-authored uh, More Than Serving Tea that came out with IVP in 2006. God's Graffiti Devotional in 2015. Uh, with my man Ramal Toon uh, and do better study guy which was in 2017. She's also a columnist out at Sojourners Magazine. She blogs at her own website, kathykong.com, which I will put all of this stuff in the show notes. Uh, tweets and Instagrams at Miss Kathy Kang, Kong, excuse me. Uh, posts at, at facebook.com, Kathy Kong author, and partners with Christian influencers move forward on issues of race, ethnicity, gender uh, within the church. And so I am just excited to finally get Kathy. I actually had to go to my publisher because we both published with IVP and said, man, I need need to get a copy of the book. (laughs) I need uh, Kathy to come on the show and we need to talk uh, all things related to race and being a woman, being uh, with kids and being Korean and an immigrant, all those things um, just affect us and impact us. And Kathy just is has a unique perspective um, Her book is Raise Your Voice uh, Why We Stay Silent and How to Speak Up It was just put out by University Books And uh, it's a great read, y'all um, And uh, more than that, Kathy is an amazing person As it relates to race and gender um, uh, Being able to speak evangelical But also being able to really engage issues beyond she's able to have conversations in that tension right of the of the what can become but we're living in the what is right um, so I've appreciated that about her I've appreciated that about just what she does and she's got an amazing word so I wanted to bring on the show so here she is so without any further ado as I always say um, here is Kathy and I just breaking some things down Um, As it relates to her book and just her life. I think you'll get a good insight uh, on who she is as a person. So yeah, check it out. Here we go. All right, right, folks. Well, welcome back to uh, Profane Faith. And today I have my good friend with me, Kathy Kong. She has put together an amazing book called Raise Your Voice why we stand silent, and how to speak up. We about to dive in, but first, Kathy, welcome to the show.
4: Thanks, Dan. It's good to be here.
3: Officially, officially. Yeah, and I had you on for a special edition a while back. Yeah. Yes, and so, folks, y'all can go back and listen to that. It was on, I think it was after the Las Vegas shooting.
4: Oh, man. Probably. (laughs) (laughs) after some shooting oh man
3: oh my gosh yes um something crazy like that but uh let me start off I mean I have so many questions about this book but let me start off just so the listeners because I didn't ask you then because I knew we had to dive right into that subject matter but what what has been what has happened between your birth and now like what's happened between that 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 space
4: uh I think I've done uh some figuring out about <laughs> yeah. who who I am and gotten comfortable mm. with being who I am. Okay. Um as a Korean American woman of faith. Yes. and learning to be comfortable in my own skin and the space that I occupy and um and I think I have gotten wiser about what to give all my Fs about and what not to worry about.
2: <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. All
3: right. So talk to me a little bit now. You, you were not born here in the U.S., correct?
4: Correct. So I was born in Seoul, South Korea, but came to the U.S. Uh, in 71 with my oh, wow. parents. I wow. was eight months old. Yeah. Awesome. I was eight months old.
3: That Wow. Awesome. Awesome. Now, and for your parents, what was it, what was like the, the immigration process like back then, like in 70 or what you've heard from them? I'm just curious, given the issues that we're having now at our Southern border.
4: Oh yes. Well, um, they were able to apply, um, for papers to come to the U S because, uh, 19, I believe what 1965 immigration act and, um, opening up visas for more East Asians to come to the U S okay. And, uh, they were fortunate because they also, uh, were educated. So they both had, um, bachelor's degrees. My dad, I had actually multiple degrees at that point. Um, which meant nothing once mm. we came to the U S
3: really <laughs>
4: <laughs> because it wasn't like there was going to be a job waiting for uh, them. Yeah. And, uh, there wasn't going to be necessarily access, um, for that. So it really, in some ways was an intentional brain drain mm. from certain countries in okay. my humble opinion.
2: Okay. All right.
4: Uh, and so, you know, my parents tell the story of us coming to the U.S. We were supposed to end up in Philly, but stayed in Chicago because we had extended family here. And my dad, who had degrees in chemical engineering, mining, wow, engineering, um, he was a busboy at a Japanese restaurant.
3: Wow, get out! Yeah.
4: yeah, and and he did that for a while because. Um, there are stories about him, um, biking Uh to work back and forth and kind of bringing home leftovers for my mom who, you know, at that time eventually was pregnant with my sister. Okay. So, uh, yeah. So these great stories about how they lived, very frugal, which explains a lot of the weird habits they have and the weird habits I have. So
3: that's funny. Well, I, well, I mean, I know because my grandmother lived, you know, during the Great Depression,
4: mm-hmm. uh, being a
3: Mexican-American woman. I mean, so I mean, I remember times where she would we would all save like paper towels like we would use them. And she'd be like, no, 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 you can reuse those. So let's put them out to dry and stuff. Yes. Yeah. Stuff like that.
4: Oh, yes. Yes. It, it hasn't been until the last few years where i've not done that
2: <laughs> <laughs> I love you know it.
4: someone gets sick and we pull out the paper towels yes and, and it's kind of like oh but put your paper towel over there and the family just looks at me like i am absolutely out of my mind mm-hmm. i still save all of the like weird condiment packets there's like yes. a in the fridge yes. for all of that. because you never know when you need like a packet of gross yellow mustard you right. just don't
3: know right well and i will have it <laughs> that's right oh my gosh that is that is hilarious I don't, I don't know about in your tradition at least in the mexican tradition Vicks fixed everything it's like you got a broken arm and like, put some vix on it and stuff so we that was another thing that she brought from from that era <laughs>
4: <laughs> well and i remember that i don't think it fixed everything but i do remember like when i got sick uh-huh or wasn't feeling well. That was what went on our chest. Yes, and on our yes. neck. Yep. And yeah, so I have I have a jar of it by my on my nightstand, <laughs> and I use that religiously.
3: <laughs> I love it. Now, tell me a little bit about as a worded faith and theology and and all that. And then I'd love to hear that story. And then I also want to know when when did it, when did the lights go on for you in regards to race and racism.
4: Oh, good grief. So um, I grew up in a Christian home. One of the first photographs I have of me and my family after arriving in the U.S. is in front of um, the Korean UMC church, mm. and um, and my family tells a story. Yeah, we, we went to church the first Sunday we got to Chicago, um, and so grew up in the tradition and um, went from immigrant church to immigrant church. And the faith really kind of started to become my own once I got to college and had the choice of whether or not I was going to go to church Okay. and found a great community of Asian American Christians who were very thoughtful, not only in their faith, but intentional in exploring how ethnicity and culture intersected. With that.
1: Mm. And
4: I would say awareness around race and ethnicity happened in second grade
2: Mm. when
4: we moved out to the Chicago suburbs. So until then, we had lived on the north side of Chicago near what is currently Albany Park and uh, went to a Chicago public school. And I actually don't remember the idea of, like, whiteness. Okay. Right? So, like, the the whitest friend I would have had, and I remember them, uh, would have been Evangelia, but she was Greek.
3: Okay. Okay.
4: And spoke Greek at home, and I remember her mother and her grandmother, and, you know, the smells and the sounds in her home were very different than, say, Vikram, who was... Indian, I believe. Okay. And Serge, who is Filipino. Right. So, like, I have these distinct memories of these elementary school friends mm. from the north side of Chicago, and every house had different smells,
2: different foods,
4: but not this sense of, like, oh, they're white or they're American. Okay. So, it was very distinct ethnicities and cultures. And then I moved out to the suburbs because you know, education. Yes. And um, it was uh, my my entry into school. We were the first uh, non-white, we were the first minority family in the school district. Oh, wow. And um, I was assigned a buddy <laughs> on the first day of school. All right, all right. And she showed me the important places in the school And at one point she looked at me and she was like, what's wrong with your nose and your eyes?
2: No.
3: And I was like,
4: well, what's wrong with yours? And we became the best of friends.
3: Get out. Are you serious?
4: (laughs) Yeah, we did. And the funny thing was a few years ago through Facebook, we reconnected. She had found my blog and we got together and um, we've hung out at our high school reunions. and Kind of laughed about how our journeys have been and where our families are at and just had wonderful times of reconnecting. And she does not remember that. I do. She was horrified when I shared it with her. And <laughs> I said, "No, no, no, I'm not telling you to make you feel guilty. I'm sharing it with you because I think, you know, it says something about what we retain from childhood." Yeah. Yeah. And what our understanding is at the time, right? And and she had never seen a Korean American. She, you know, what what else what kind of exposure would she have had? And I didn't know how to respond to that question because I'd never been asked those questions Mm. because the experience on the North side was so different. And so I just remember thinking, okay, well, she asked me a question and I asked back because, yeah, looking at her and looking back, my school was really weird to me. Everybody looked really weird to yeah. me from the eyes of a second grader, and it could have gone many ways with her. Yeah, um, but it didn't. We ended up being best friends and having memories of each other's homes and how we interpreted those memories. So it was it was hilarious. Wow,
3: that's yeah. that's fascinating. That's fascinating. Now, so suburbs. Minority, you know, a family there, and so you went to college now because you had a different another career prior to all this other ministry stuff. You were a journalist, yes.
4: I was, I was in Green Bay, Wisconsin. Lord Jesus, wow, and Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So, very different. Okay, all right, yeah, yeah. Green Bay that was like that was my exile period.
3: (laughs) Your exile period, what now? What do you mean by that?
4: Well, you know, I get up there and again, you know, I kind of thought, well, I grew up in the Burbs and had this really interesting experience and had lots of um, racist experiences mm-hmm. in college and high school, elementary school. So, you know, you kind of think you're prepared.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: You get up there and it's just wild. Um, most of the Asians that I interacted with were Hmong. Okay. And okay. um and, and so very distinct community there. And the interactions were very limited with folks who are native Green Bay residents. And so learning again, like you couldn't call yourself from Green Bay unless you had somebody who had been buried there right? Like family buried in green Bay. Wow.
3: They're serious up there, man. Them and they're them Packers.
4: Yeah. Oh yes. And then the minute they found out I was, you know, from the Chicagoland area, it was all out like hazing. That's what I call it. Wow. Had to cover, um, a Packer tailgate,
2: oh my. interview
4: someone from the front office, go ice fishing. Oh yeah. It was fabulous. And then, um, <laughs> And then it was the experience of people who had moved to Green Bay, because Green Bay, to folks in the surrounding areas, was the big city. Okay. And um, and I entered into that newsroom in the early 90s. We were in a recession, and there also was a big push for diversity hiring oh. in the newsroom industry. And okay. So, There was a lot of assuming that I had been hired simply because I was a diversity hire. Never mind the fact that I went to a top journalism school in the country and did pretty well, had an awesome uh, internship experience. Of course.
3: Of course. During
4: my school years and had been hired on beyond my internship, right? None of that Mm -hmm. mattered. It was just kind of like, oh, look,
2: here's the
4: diversity hire. Yes. And feeling like I had to prove myself and um, and knowing tons of folks of color, we get that message, right? We can't just be good enough or better. We have to work even harder
2: yes. to prove that yes. we weren't
4: hired because of the color of our skin. Yes. Of that. And so that really kicked into high gear for me. Wow.
3: Wow, well, man. And so... So I'm just curious, just in the timeline of things. So you I know you're married and two kids, three kids.
4: Three kids, yeah. Okay,
3: all right. And so and they um because I know I see pictures of your you and your daughter on Instagram and, and whatnot, and so and so. Is she the oldest?
4: She is the oldest. Okay, and, uh, She's out in Brooklyn living her best life.
3: Wow, the BK. All right, all right. Yeah. Shoot. Um, and so and how long have you been married?
4: Oh It'll be twenty six years next
3: week. Wow. Twenty six years. ah, year. uh, wow, Kathy, I uh, that's that's what's
4: up. Uh, till death. That's what's <laughs> up. <till death. laughs>
3: that's, that's right. Wow. I we celebrated seventeen here this last this past November. So man, we're 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 a little a little a little behind you.
4: You know, but still that's amazing. Cause this world
3: It is. It is brutal. How how, did you guys had y'all meet and all that stuff? I got I got to ask.
4: Yeah, we met while I was in Green Bay, Wisconsin, actually. And he had just gotten a job in Appleton, Wisconsin, which is just south of green Bay. And we have mutual friends. Uh, he went to church with and grew up with, and I went to college with, mm-hmm. and they introduced us thinking that he would make a good big brother. So he's a few years older than I am Okay. and thought, Hey, there are these two Korean Americans stranded in Northeast Wisconsin. Uh, maybe they'll hang out or, you know, get rides down to Chicago to come home. And we met and had a great phone conversation and met in person and, and then the rest is history. There
3: you go. There you go. That's That's what's up. That's what's up. So in, okay. Wow. I mean, this, I got so much there, but let me fast forward. Then you working in ministry or working in, in, in evangelical settings and whatnot. What, um, uh, what, (sighs) how would you define that? What would you define that in in your engagement with those organizations Ugh, or organization?
4: Uh, yes. Yes. Well, I work in an evangelical organization and am adjacent to so many and tend to be in those circles quite a bit. Um, ah, what? How would I describe that? Oh, uh, it is a, it's a daily discipline (laughs) (laughs) and invitation into, mm, uh, how should I, I don't even know how to describe it, Dan. You know, honestly, when I, when I came into ministry 20 years ago, I had no idea. I really didn't. And in, in a lot of ways for me, it was, um, It was a wonderful move out of the newsroom.
2: Mm, Okay, okay.
4: And even in the newsroom, it was just hard to be one of a few people of color, few women of color in the newsroom, in the editorial side. Um, The the mentors, the people that I looked up to were Mm -hmm. by and large all white. Yeah. Um, Many of them had less than, desirable personal lives so that was the other thing right i i just <laughs> all right like it just was kind of a uh, we, oh, weird place a weird place and i loved what i did in terms of the reporting and the writing but again that space was just so white yeah and um and exhausting. It mm-hmm. was exhausting. And so, you know, ironically, I thought going into ministry was <laughs> going to be, um, a break from okay. that. Okay. And, and in a lot of ways, when I first came into ministry, it was, so I was working with Asian American students mm-hmm. and, um, the staff team that I was in, in the Chicagoland area was diverse. And was working on things in terms of race, ethnicity, culture, how that impacted ministry, how it's how we saw the world and how we saw faith um, in ways in which maybe more broadly, nationally, even regionally, uh, it wasn't happening. And eventually it did. But the longer I stayed um, the longer I realized that I was also in a process of
2: mm.
4: peeling back layers, trying to understand what I believed, where those beliefs came from, and as a practitioner, what did that mean? You know it's one thing to yeah. it's one thing to be a preacher or to write things, or you know, to be in academia. Yeah, It's a whole nother thing to be on the ground uh, with students, Yeah, young adults, and the seasoned veterans who have tons more experience, but maybe have never had to uh, examine their own biases. Yes. So I would say the journey has been one of sanctification.
3: All right. All right.
4: And uh you know, a term that's used now that I was not familiar with 20 years ago, decolonization. Okay. But really, you know, it's a it's a chipping away at kind of the childhood beliefs yeah. that I had and understanding of faith and who I am and growing into adulthood and sometimes that means Maybe there's a little cynicism. (laughs) Right. But there's also a lot of freedom and to say, you know what? I have no more Fs to give.
3: Yes. Yes. Well, I mean, I I find that fascinating. I mean, because, yeah, trying to nuance, you know, uh, organizations. I mean, I I had very similar uh, experience, you know, coming out of Well, I was in the construction world. I mean, after I graduated high school i was like look you got three options you either you can't be sitting around playing super nes all day and i that was that was where i tapped out super <laughs> nes that was it i was that was my super mario kart and she was like you know you either got to go to work you got to go to school you know what I'm saying but you can't do you just can't be sitting around so i was like dang it so i just i was like well i ain't going to no school um so i was like well i'm gonna go so i was you know i built homes for a long time in uh california and I thought, oh, man, it'd be so great to get into ministry. I could talk about my faith and I don't have to worry about this. And I don't worry about that. And then just kind of being disillusioned, um, you know, with that, because I feel like the first, I don't know, probably six years, seven years of me working in, you know, with Young Life, it was like I had to deny um, most uh, of the aspects of me being black, um, you know, in those in those 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 crowds. So I don't know. I mean, what, how, how was your experience just, you know, navigating? Because, right, intersectionality, you woman, uh, right. married, kids. And I'm imagining at some point those kids uh, uh, were in the womb. Yes. <laughs> and um, yes. that adds another layer. Then you got the race uh, yeah. a, a thing on there. I, I don't know if you've ever gotten asked the question, you know, where, you know, or where, where are you from or what's oh, this yeah. and all that. Uh,
4: oh, yeah. No, where are you really from?
3: Right. <laughs> Right,
4: And I just like to string that along as far as I can. Yes. Right? Like, ask me what you really mean. Yes. And I'm going to make you ask me because where are you from? I already answered that like five times.
2: Right. Right.
4: So, well, you know, and I came on um, into the organization Mm -hmm. as a married woman with a child. Okay. Right. So right off the bat, I had a lot of questions about like, do people do this? (laughs) Do people do this? And really at the time, there were only a handful of people, women who did that. And my husband never had, he was never in vocational ministry. He knew he enjoys his life as a dentist and now as faculty teaching future dentists, like he knew, he loves it. He was not going to pretend that he wanted to hang out with college students (laughs) all the
3: time. Right.
4: Right. So, uh, so I had a lot of questions and then I, again, had the benefit of kind of easing into this because I was doing ethnic specific ministry. My Mm -hmm. heart that, you know, that said yes to ministry was at the beginning. I really want to focus my time with Asian American students, Mm. um, whether Mm. or not they come from a church background uh, they're entering into the college space and navigating all of that, plus asking questions about faith. Mm. And so I had it really good in that respect. I got to ease into the harder, uh, more difficult conversations because I knew what I was getting into, or at least I thought I did, right? Ethnic specific ministry. And mm-hmm. then And then I was aware, like, oh, not everyone thinks this should be a thing. (laughs) (laughs) Not everyone thinks this is okay. Great. And then add to the fact that I am a woman. I'm Korean American. So there are other dynamics within the Korean American church, Mm -hmm. the, the evangelical Korean American church about the roles of women. I had Asian American students. Um, Even in my student leadership days, fellow students asking the question whether or not women could lead Mm -hmm. and should lead. So that's always been a part of the, you know, to use very evangelical terms, the cross I bear.
2: Um, (laughs) Because I
4: can't, right, I can't hide, and I don't want to hide the fact that I am, you know, a cisgender, straight, married Korean woman mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and, and then like you said, when I was pregnant, you know, try and hide that. <laughs>
3: <laughs> oh, mercy. Um, y- yeah, I mean, well, let me ask this then because, you know, because a lot of folks, a couple different questions then on that because, and, and trust me, y'all, y'all listen, I know what about the book? We get into the book. This is all leading up to raise your voice. Cause this is, this is information and knowledge. I didn't even know about you. So this is this is good stuff. Um where were you then? Cuz folks have mentioned uh you know, Trayvon being kind of an entry point or Mike Brown, um or Troy Davis as being an entry point of them being woke. Uh I know I've talked with guests who said, "Man, and you know, I came out of real conservative roots." What theologically, I mean, if you don't mind sharing, like where where were you? Where where were you, you know, in in regards to that? I know folks who've been on the show have been like, you know, in 08 I voted for, uh, uh, for, uh, McCain and Sarah Palin, you know, I, I couldn't see voting for, you know, a, a Democrat or a liberal, there's liberals, theologians and stuff, you know, it's like, Oh my gosh. Those say t- Satan themselves are residing in there. So I don't know. I'm just curious, like, you know, how did, how has that developed or have you, you know, have you, have you, have you always had that, that got that edge about you and, and whatnot?
4: Yeah. So I would, I would say, um, In my space, I've always had the reputation of having a bit of an edge. Uh, Again, in in evangelical circles, we call it a prophetic voice. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, right? (laughs) Um,
4: And a lot of times I think we call people that when we really want to say they're just troublemakers. But um, I would say it would be further back, definitely – Uh, So I couldn't vote for McCain or Palin, but was very much paying attention to what was going on in politics because I wasn't a U.S. citizen.
3: Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah,
4: until 07. What? And part of, yeah, I know, I know. This is
3: stuff I didn't know. I didn't know. Wow, okay. Uh, Keep going, keep going, keep going.
4: Yeah, so, you know, um, a lot of the my more political side started coming out as I was watching uh, all of that unfold and even watching and holding my breath when Barack Obama announced his candidacy
2: Mm.
4: and kind of the, the reactions people had. And I thought to myself, a lot of times, and I know I wasn't alone. Yeah, you know, it'd be a whole lot easier if people just said they couldn't vote for him because he was black,
2: <laughs> right? <laughs> like,
4: every excuse under the sun, and it was kind of like, no, you just cannot vote for a black man.
2: Right, right. And a
4: black man with the name Barack Hussein Obama. Yeah. Let's, you know,
2: can we just, <laughs> yeah. let's
4: just be honest. Um, you know, and the birther movement, all of that. All of that garbage and and then watching watching the win and um seeing the Obamas step onto that stage, right? I was watching by television, mm-hmm. totally regret not getting in a car and getting oh, our butts down there. Yeah,
3: that's right. That's right. You were right? you were, yeah, I was on the West yeah. Coast. But yeah. yeah. Wow.
4: And watching this on television and thinking one, hoping Oh my God! They must are they are they crazy? Like they're going out on the stage, out there. Do we have snipers?
2: Right. No, I, I right. Like, right.
4: The, that's where my yep. thoughts were going. Yep. Um, and crying mm-hmm. and thinking, how can I not be a part of this? Um, yeah. So I was not a U.S. citizen. I um. Uh, had my green card and had really been wrestling with whether or not I wanted to become a U.S. citizen. Okay. And in part because even to this day, like you said, the question of where are you from uh, begs the assumption that I am not from here.
2: Mm -hmm. Right. And, Mm -hmm.
4: And really, I mean, eight months in Seoul, South Korea, I am essentially from here. I have no childhood memories except from the one trip when I was little that I took to Korea. Like the U.S. has always been home as much as home can be.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And
4: so, right, the question assumes that I can't possibly be from here. And and because I've been asked that, and for many other reasons, like, you know, the racism here in the U.S., have up until that point had held on to my Korean citizenship. And then I began, began to wrestle with, uh, the open process I had to citizenship, knowing that I had a privilege that many people I know do not. Right. So Mm. I have my papers. Mm. I could write that almost $800 check just to apply. Wow! I could take time off work. I could navigate the system if I needed to, and I didn't. I could have hired an attorney. I have the language. I could take time off to go get the biometrics done. Right? I I had the privilege and the open pathway to citizenship, mm-hmm. and knew that wasn't the case for so many. Yeah. And really wrestled with that. And I thought, okay, I need to do this. I need to be a part of this system in a way that I know others cannot. Wow. And so, yeah, so that was really the, the big, be- one of the beginnings, right, in mm-hmm. my adulthood
2: that mm-hmm.
4: kind of led up to where I am now. So I would say that was kind of the big uh, journey that I took.
3: Okay. Okay. And trying
4: to figure out, okay, what does this mean yes. now? What does it mean as a Christian? And how do I communicate those values in terms of action? And again, not just political action, but what does it mean to be engaged in your community? And one of those ways is to be engaged uh, politically, um, be civic minded, pay attention to what happens um, in your community decisions that impact not just you and make it easier for you, but yeah. actually impact those that don't live in a nice home where I can afford to turn the heat up, right? Things like that. So I think that was the beginning of something new for mm-hmm. me mm-hmm. because until then I watched what was going on, but also felt very detached knowing I was choosing out of a particular system. Uh, and you know, that was a little bit of a protest knowing that that system was never created for someone like you or me.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
4: So I could opt in and had to opt in into something that wasn't actually for me and try to stake claim to the right to vote and to be able to say, yeah, I'm, an American. And I actually have papers, (laughs) right? I, I have naturalization papers. So, um, so that was the beginning. And then, and then, you know, there were so many things that happened and continue to happen, continue to happen, right? It's like never ending with shooting. Which dead black man, right? Which dead black woman can we talk about?
3: Yeah. Yeah. Um, so then this brings us, I mean, cause again, having read just the first few chapters of your book, I mean, you, you talk a lot about this already. And so, you know, raising your voice, I mean, what's the, what was the Genesis for, for, for this book?
4: So it actually wasn't, um, only what was going on in the US Mm -hmm. in terms of, you know, innocent black men being shot, black boys being shot. But it was this overall journey of trying to figure out what was I going to speak up about? How did I make those choices? And what did I learn? Uh, And in part, it was trying to figure out, did I have anything to say that was worthwhile? And did I have to be an expert? Because so many books in the Christian faith, evangelical world, you know, are written by white men. Uh, yes. And it's always from the posture of like, here are the things that will work.
2: Right, (laughs) right. Right.
4: Do these five things (laughs) and you will be a great leader. And I was not comfortable with that. Because this process and this idea of raising your voice was is still something that I am learning mm. and practicing and making mistakes and second-guessing. Uh, but it's also something that I know lots of other people do. Yeah. And I just finally felt after 10 years of kind of wrestling with the idea of maybe this is maybe this is the book. Maybe this is the topic that I have more than two chapters to write about having to overcome that feeling of, I have to be the expert on this. Yeah. Well, but no, I don't.
3: Well, I mean, I think it's interesting because it's like, when you say that, I feel like you've been writing like a book a year. I mean, I I guess I've followed you long enough and, you know, and on Twitter and all that good stuff. I just, I, it, when I looked out, I was like, wait a minute, this is, this is, this is your second book, right? Or third.
4: Second. And the first one really, I was a part of a joint writing team. So there were five authors and okay. that one I wrote two chapters okay. and I think that that was it. Um, and I think we wrote that like 12, almost 12 years ago, Okay. 12, 13 years ago. And so even back then it was, you know, in that group of women, we all decided none of us had a full book, but we definitely had chapters in us And I think I carried that for a long time of feeling like I don't know if I have the authority or the permission to write an entire book Mm. on something as uh, brazen as yeah, raise your voice, which I thought was hilarious, right? Because because one culturally speaking, I often feel like I'm the last person who should be raising her voice. (laughs) (laughs) But like you said, I think over the long haul, over the last 12 whatever years, that's what I've been practicing. That's what I've been doing. And, you know, sometimes making mistakes, sometimes offending people, sometimes offending the wrong people, and sometimes offending the right people and provoking people. So...
3: Well, you talk about, uh, now. this is good. I mean, you talk about here on page 31, you talk about struggling with credibility. You say, I'm a Korean American, married mother of three with no advanced degree, living in the suburbs in the middle of a midlife crisis, wondering how or if my 20 years of vocation, uh, vocational ministry can transfer into a different vocation. I write infrequently. I speak even more infrequently. I've been told that I'm a prophetic voice, but I cringe at that description So do I, because biblical prophets are lonely and cranky. Yes. Yes. And I want to be perceived as fun and warm. Yes. And that's just it. I I feel the exact same way. I mean, most people don't know my silly side. They've never seen some of the crazy antics I do here at the house. So they just know angry Dan and he he uses four letter words and, and oh my gosh, can you don't don't never invite him again to CCDA. Right. Um, (laughs) Ah. (laughs) And oh, and did I mention that I'm a woman of color ministry? Who, I mean, as you put this book together and write as authors, we all know, I don't know if you had to put together a packet or whatever, but everybody always asks, who is your target audience? But who did you want to write this book for?
4: I originally wanted to write it for younger, particularly women of color. But a broader audience would be to encourage people of color. Uh, because I think we do a lot of raising our voices because we have to, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right. It's survival. And we, we learn ways that are appropriate, but, um, code switching is a way we raise our voice. Yeah. Right. We, so it's a matter of survival, but I think it's, I wanted, I wanted people of color to see different stories, and hear a voice that wasn't a white man, that wasn't a white woman, yeah. that was very much, I know who I am, and I know by the very body I have, people might be reluctant to even pick up my book.
2: Hmm. Hmm.
4: I, get th- I get that. I get that. Um, and that's not okay, but I'm not going to lose sleep over it anymore. Yeah. And, and I think initially I wondered, do women of color, do men of color need to be encouraged and reminded and given permission to use and raise their voices and I guess from the reception I'm getting on the book, yes. <laughs> yes. Yes, we do. Because we're told so many times over and over, whether it's in the office, whether it's in church, sometimes even in our own families. Yes. Right? Yes. That, yes. That we need to tone it down.
3: Yes. that And, and, and that phrasing. That phrasing.
4: Right. Yeah. Yeah. So. Well, I think. No, go ahead. Yeah. So that was the audience. That was. um, So I'm. I'm delighted when, when authors, of (laughs) non-color, right. I want to. I want to find new words to describe, white readers.
3: Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Absolutely.
4: So so non-color. Um, I've been delighted that, uh, there. Encouraged, have enjoyed the book, but also uh, their awareness is shifting,
2: right? Because
4: it's the way I write about Moses or about Esther that's different than how they hear the stories told and interpreted by white male pastors.
3: Right. Right. So that's fun. Well, and I think, I mean, so chapter six was interesting. Um, cause you get into a lot of the, cause I think what you I man, your, your social media is feed is amazing. So of you listening, if you haven't followed, you, you just got to go and follow Kathy. Cause I mean, you have, I love the way your use of polemics and candor and humor and rhetoric all interweave uh, through that. So you talk a little bit about engagement online. What, what is what is that what does that look like in this day and age where everything's a hashtag we have a president that holds briefings on Twitter now Ugh. um we 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 have an environment now where things right it's like we're we're just uncovering more about Facebook and what their involvement was in the 2016 oh, election right um, so why would anyone want to enter you talked about you know you said you beat the punch with your kids you you learned about new technologies and you wanted to be on there before they did. That's that's amazing. Um what does that mean for you? Do you find yourself exhausted with that? Do you find yourself keeping up cuz you got I mean you on Instagram, you have uh, some great uh hashtags that you you know you put out there. So I'd be curious if you share a little bit about that, especially when it gets ugly and nasty and people are starting to troll you and
4: Right. Right. Well, it gets exhausting when uh I hit a nerve. And the trolls come out. And then I have to back off because I realize one, don't feed the trolls. Don't feed the trolls. I mean, maybe a little because it can be fun if you have the energy.
2: Yeah, right, right. the desire
4: to kind of engage in a polite but, you know, slightly snarky gentle way to (laughs) flesh out what's actually going on. Uh, But otherwise, uh, I have... I I go into those social media spaces knowing that I can help people engage or I can entertain. And sometimes it's entertaining because the space can be just for fun. But I also realize that there's a lot of power in words and images. Yeah, And so I do like to... Use my social media spaces to provoke people yeah. to think and to share information or thoughts or ideas, perspectives that they may not find in their other social media feeds. I think inst- um, I would say Twitter is a different space because I, I do think people are generally seeking out that kind of. Information, mm-hmm. right? They're looking for articles or people who have great threads and that kind of stuff. So it, I think that space is a lot easier to share and curate and be engaged, at least for me. I don't mind Twitter. I really enjoy p- Twitter. I know there are a lot of folks who think it's just like a cesspool, but
3: um, <laughs> I'm on there way too much myself. So I feel you.
4: Yeah. But Instagram, I think, is a really weird space because it can just be like pretty pictures. Yes. And I think particularly for women, it can be a dangerous space of comparison where Mm. you start looking at how perfect someone else's beautifully curated life is. And you start thinking, Oh my gosh, I have to go to target and like redecorate my home. Hmm. Or, (laughs) You know, I need a new haircut or I need a better filter, you know, that kind of stuff. Yes. And I, I want to make sure that that's not the case for me on Instagram and, um, and also, uh, trying to use that space again as a way to provoke and get people thinking and, um, and encourage people to use social media spaces to connect yeah. with ideas that you may not have come across to engage maybe a little deeper in things that make you a little uncomfortable but you are curious about
2: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, but
4: yeah it get really ugly really fast i do think that the environment now is even more so than just like even two years ago, it's really easy to post something and have it dissected into a million pieces. Yeah. Right, like if you post about this thing, why didn't you post about these other things? Do you not care about X, Y, and Z?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
4: Oh, but you use this word. What did you mean by this word, right? So I do think that there... I am finding that it is a lot more uh it takes a lot more energy mm-hmm. to navigate spaces cuz we we will eat each other up.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you talk about it here on page 126 and I know our time is nigh, but this is I mean I can't believe it's it, it this has gone so quick. It feels like 10 minutes, but you say engaging in online exchanges, particularly the larger scale organized online actions, been a part of, it's never about creating conflict for conflict's sake. I like that. It's always about the truth of the gospel and how it's being incorrectly communicated through stereotypes or through dangerous policies and practices. This isn't about forcing the church to be politically correct or about an individual speaking their mind. It's about how the church and its leaders and members bear false witness in their public leadership. And that, I mean, when you when I read that, I was like, yes. Because oftentimes I haven't had the words to say it's like, oh, well, you just you know, you're like the, the politically correct police and you want to tell people what they can and can't say. I'm like, no, 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 no. But when you're bearing false witness, when John MacArthur can come out and have this statement that's signed by a whole bunch uh, of different pastors. Right. Yes. Um, That's bearing false witness. Right. Yes. Yeah. Um, That is that is not a representation of what I have interpreted the gospel to be. Um, when we tell folks, uh, like Sue Ann, right. You know that, right. Oh yeah, we're welcoming. Not really welcoming though. We, you know, it's like, no, that's bearing false witness. So right. that's powerful. Yeah. Now I, real quick. I mean, if you can share, I mean, what are some of the risks of raising your voice? Cause I feel, I, I feel like that's a, it's a big burden. Uh, when you raise your voice, especially when there is a message that, you know, God has just been like, no, you got to go say this. This is this yeah. is you got to go do that.
4: Yeah. So, I mean, this gets risky in light of um <laughs> this recent uh failed missionary, John Chow.
2: Yeah, 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 yeah. Come right. On.
4: Right. Like you are you feel like God has called you to do X. And then yes, you you get killed in the process. Um, and so I, I don't want to take all of that lightly, but I will say that it is a dangerous time here, particularly here in the U S so, but also globally, but particularly here in the U S where one, you and I do not know who has a gun. Right. <laughs> so let's just right. be honest. Yeah. And so um, it, it's one thing to say certain things online As white people, it's another thing for someone like me or you to post something and know that if we're speaking elsewhere publicly and we advertise that, somebody could find us.
2: Yeah, yeah.
4: Because that's real. Yes. Um, And so I think the risks are that, that extreme, but that real. Um, And there are other risks. You could lose friendships. You could decide that uh, the church you're at, the friends you have, the community you are in actually isn't the place that you thought it was, Hmm. right? Like, Suzanne, Yes. oh, the church says it's welcoming, but not really, right? When you find out and you raise your voice and you ask questions, the reality is, oh, you all have just tolerated me. Yeah. I don't know if I want to just be tolerated. Mm. And so, so that you risk being the one at the family dinner finally saying, you know what? That joke is racist. That joke is sexist. That joke is homophobic. And we're not going to do this anymore. Right. And you risk family, you risk uh, politeness. And. Mm. But I also will say that if you don't find what is your breaking point, right? Or what's the line that you're going to refuse now, like this, no more, we're not doing this anymore. If you fail to identify that and raise your voice, then I think you risk a life of being tolerated Mm. or tolerating things that, um, push you to question your own integrity.
3: Yes. Yes. Oh man.
4: And I don't want to live like that.
3: That's a word. That's a word. I don't either. I don't either. I mean, before my talk that I gave at CCD, I mean, this was something that I was belaboring for weeks. Um, and I actually didn't want to give it, but it would just, it was all these confirmations. I actually sent my notes uh to the board chair the night prior and was like uh this is what I got to say and I'm looking right. for the way out but I really okay. felt like this was what god was impressing upon me to do now I've had an overwhelming response of positivity i'd say easily 50 to 1 50 positive 1 little negative whatever and stuff so that that was that was a surprise but i think the other risk too is work employment a
2: paycheck oh
4: yeah That's real. You and I have talked about that. Yes. That is real. That is real, right? It's the, um, not only do you never get invited back. Right. And that was always a possibility because, you know, you don't necessarily need to occupy the same stage multiple times or the same chapel or the same space. But then there are other decision makers in the room.
2: Mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. other
4: decision makers who are connected to the decision makers who got you to that one gig or that one space that one opportunity who will tell others yeah no, no
3: exactly exactly don't.
4: don't they're not gonna they're not who we thought they were which is funny cuz i think for for the two of us who did you think we were
2: <laughs> right Right. who did you think
4: we were like that the 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 one (laughs) conference or oh i forget what it was called but you know the meeting that you and i were at where we finally met face to face and i had been invited in to talk about ministry training Mm. and um and the reality of it the racism and all of that and then i had asked those planners, like, are you sure you want me to be honest? And they kept saying, Oh, you know, we've had so-and-so we've had so-and-so and and so-and-so is going to speak. We're totally ready. And I was like, yeah, you know, and the minute I opened up with like, this is one of the oldest, whitest rooms, male, you know, (laughs) male dominant (laughs) rooms that I've been in in a long time. I realized right off the bat, Oh no, they thought they were ready. They're totally not ready. Um, and because I couldn't couch it in research, which then means you can keep it at an arm's distance.
2: Right. You can right. Kind of
4: be like, oh, but we are the outliers. <laughs> right. We often are the ones who come in and we're like, no, you want us to tell you. We will tell you. We will help you hold that mirror up to yourselves and ourselves. Yes. And yeah was never invited back no response and I know there were tons of folks in that room who have that power right right churches chapel all of that
3: right right they're decision makers they're gatekeepers and you know in that sense and so um yeah no I feel that and I and I that's why I feel like I can commiserate with you. I mean, on on certain things and that's why I mean that's why I even tell you. I mean, I for those of you I don't I emailed Kathy. I was like, "Man, hi. It's like, sure, I'm on the struggle bus over here. Like, what that's- in the hell is going on? But I get it. And I mean, it's like, you know, this that podcast you and I just well, you, you guys were interviewing me and stuff. It's like, you know, I wrote homeland insecurity, not having those that that typical white guy answer, right? At the end, let's just do these these things and then you know, and people don't, you know, they. a lot of folks don't want that. They. You know, the number one question I ask, get asked is like, well, what do we do? Yes. What do we
2: do?
4: Yes. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think that's because of the history that we are told about the American church. Yes. And about America is very much like, oh, these things led to the success. This is what will give you church growth. Here is how you grow into a mega church. Here is how you add satellites to, you know, like right. I think that that is the formula that we rely on. And that's the narrative that we are told. And it's really uncomfortable for those of us who know that doesn't work. Right. And right. that doesn't work for us Right. as people of color. That doesn't work for us.
3: Let me ask you this before we go is, uh, where's evangelicalism to you is, is, is we are on our last lay. Do we need a re- reiteration of it? Is it just, just scrap it. Let's just get something new.
4: Oh, wouldn't that be cool?
3: Yes, absolutely.
4: Yeah. I would, that would be amazing. That would be wonderful. Cause I, I, I really do feel like we've kind of forgotten, um, the Protestant protest roots of all of this. Yes. And you know, reformation. Hello reform, right? Right. right, All of that. And, um, yeah, I, I just am not convinced that evangelicalism can reinvent itself into some sort of like new
2: evangelicalism.
4: I'm not, I'm not convinced.
2: Okay. Uh,
4: And in part, because I, I still feel like most of the, the stakeholders the power brokers, the gatekeepers, they're still white. Um, the institutions are still white. Yes. They're funded by white people and rely on that. And and so maybe, maybe if we see some of these institutions die mm. because they can't keep up with the buildings or whatever, maybe, but Um, So I don't know. I'm not I'm not really sure, though, where to look, because progressive spaces are also problematic because there are tons of white people who think they're really, really woke (laughs) and um, and they just have a lot of language. They have a lot of language. And And some of
3: them blend in very well.
4: Right. They blend in really well. And then they get really, really hurt. Yes. When they're called out. Um, and that that hurt in progressive spaces. I don't know if I have the stomach for that. I feel like in evangelical spaces, um, uh, I, I have a little more compassion, maybe, mm-hmm. oddly, uh, because it's a different learning curve, but in progressive spaces. So, again, I'm not really sure what will happen because progressive spaces don't have it. They haven't figured it out either. Right.
3: Right. I mean, just real quick story here. Again, I know the t- I I yeah. could talk with you forever. Um, the I had a student, they do cultural experiences, which I'm after, after this student, I actually think I'm going to completely either do away with that assignment or completely restructure it cuz she was a white student, progressive, and she went to Chinatown and was this is her first time eating Chinese food and she prefaced what she said, like, oh, I'm just gonna be real and transparent. This is what was going on. But the way she talked about eating Chinese food was with utter disgust. Oh. With and her facial expressions and her demeanor and the way she was like, ah, oh, and I was making eyes and my other partner over there, and I was like, I can't believe this, and and this and this and that. So I was like, all right, you know, let me let's see how the class reacts, and sure enough. You know, I, I love it because it's predominantly ethnic minority. So they were they weren't just gonna let this go, you know. And so they you know, they jammed her up and stuff and was just like, uh, yo, and almost instantaneously, like you know, eyes welled up and she's all red and everything and like that. And so I don't know. As a professor, mm-hmm. I felt like I <sighs> this is a learning moment. And yeah. I, I, you need to, I, I really want you to get this. And I don't want to sound callous, particularly those folks who are listening and this is their first time listening. But at the same time, I've had those situations happen before where white students, particularly white women, start crying. And then everything, the entire room shifts to that. And we've forgotten yes. what the actual offense was. Yes,
4: yes, yes, yes.
3: If that makes sense.
4: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Right. White fragility, white tears. Right. All of that. Yeah. Oh, yes, absolutely.
3: I mean, you've got, I've got a Nigerian young woman in there talking about how she was raised. Like she came, she would come to school every day and people make fun of her for the food that she's made. And she's in tears every day. Ain't nobody comforting her. Ain't nobody going over to her. Right. right. You know, embracing her. I had another Vietnamese student talking to the same thing. It's like, yeah, people just, you know, thought my food was just crap. um, And I had to deal with that for, you know, my whole school, my 12 years of school.
4: Yep. Yep. And no one cared about that. No one. Yeah. In no, fact, one, no one stopped the class to address those tears. Nope. nope. Yeah.
3: Nope. And no one, and no one, and in fact, I would imagine most people would be like, just get over it. It's not that deep.
4: Right. not right. that deep. Oh, they were kids. Right. Right. Just, oh, they're young. It's just food. Don't worry about it. Let it go. Don't be so sensitive. Right. Oh, yeah. We hear it all the time. We hear it all the time. And, and again, I think it it goes back to that sense of oh i can do these 3 things and then i will be correct right, right? how right. do you how do we get this right it's this fear of failure and rejection and i just think that people of color we are so used to rejection yes we are just our bodies are rejected as being accept- acceptable or human and so I, there is that moment where I'm like, how do I recognize, say, in that young student, in that one young woman, like, okay, you are created in God's image. Mm-hmm.
2: God loves you. Mm-hmm.
4: God loves me. Give me patience. Right. How do I speak into this moment without destroying her in the same ways in which you and I have been destroyed, right? Or... Mm. Folks have tried to destroy us. How do I do that in a way that is loving, truthful, and compassionate? And I just think it's so hard. It is so hard because again, I think people of color have had to learn how to do that for ourselves, right? Yes. We have had to tell ourselves we are human. We are loved. We are valuable. Yes we can't rely on someone else to do that yes. maybe our family yeah but but that young woman she's probably had a lifetime of people affirming her absolutely right and so so i so i again i have no answers to this but it is that struggle of like i don't want to destroy her in the ways in which white supremacy has tried to destroy us yes Yes. I just don't know how to do that well yet.
3: Oh Man, y'all, y'all got to go out and get this book. The book is Raise Your Voice, Why We Stay Silent and How to Speak Up. I love the back parts as you have a voice and you have God's permission to use it. Kathy, thanks so much.
4: Thank you so much, Dan.
3: I really appreciate you coming on. Real quick before we uh, sign off here, what where can folks find you? Where can we, uh, you know, get you get you that uh, five hundred thousand dollar honorarium to speak for thirty minutes? Yeah,
4: that'd be awesome. Uh, <laughs> so I have a website, Kong dot com. And so if you're looking for a speaker and are curious, all that information is there. Yes. And then I am on Facebook. You can look me up by my name. I have an author page and a personal page. And then on Instagram and Twitter at Ms. Kathy Kong.
3: Nice. And for again, for those of you listening, as always, I'll put all this in the show notes um, and you can, hire this woman to come out and do some consulting and all that good stuff that you're thinking about um Kathy again this is an amazing book I'm looking forward to finishing this this thing up but from what I've read this is amazing
4: thank you thank you
3: we'll get you back on soon
4: sounds good of waiting for the not yet. So I go back to scripture because I don't wait very well. I get anxious waiting and my anxiety turns to anger. I know for some of you, That's not your personality. For those of you who know me, you know, like despite the cheery whatever, I get angry. You better get out of my way. And so I find myself in this season of like trying to wait and be patient, but I am angry. I am angry with Jesus. I do not understand why, why? Like even this week, why? Why is a comedian apologizing for sexually assaulting and harassing women, even though it was probably an apology written by a great PR firm, why is a comedian apologizing before a politician who has used the Ten Commandments as a way of wielding authority and power over people. I don't understand. I don't understand, Jesus. I am tired of waiting and I get angry and then I go online and I just sink into a deeper hole and I have to pull myself out. And I am so grateful that in this week, I had to set my heart for this time and to be here with all of you. Because what you, not all of you, many of you, long for live out is that tension of the now and the not yet. After this, I looked and there was a great crowd that no one could number. They were from every nation, tribe, people, and language. They were standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They wore white robes and held palm branches in their hands. They cried out with a loud voice, victory belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood in a circle around the throne. And around the elders and the four living creatures, they fell face down before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and always. Amen.